Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Nice. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us today is co-host, Christian Basil. Say hi, Christian. Hi, Christian. You knew no. he was going to do that. <laughs> Hello, Gracie. That no, wasn't yeah, supposed to be literal. Hi. <laughs> and Hi, our, guest, uh, our guest today is a remarkable woman. She was mm-hmm. the childlike empress in The NeverEnding Story, and she is now a master of dance. Welcome to the show, Tammy Stronach. Thank you so much for having me. She sounds a little bit older than, we, than I last saw her. Well, she's yeah. a, she's <laughs> a ageless. Just a wee bit older. And and I I looked you up, you know, the opportunity came up, and I looked at your picture, and I went, oh my god, she's just she is timeless dancers, you know. And oh. the more I read about you, the more I realized that your experience uh, doing that show when you were ten years old or eleven years old. I, I guess it was, uh, made a profound impression on you. Um, it did. It did. I, I feel like um, in some ways, you know, you don't always see the way that the threads of your life weave together. But having the space and time to sort of reflect on everything, having had a dance career and then doing some acting and creating a new company now and having a, a, a daughter, it made me start thinking a lot about uh, children's stories and the kinds of stories that were important to me as a young girl. And obviously, being a part of the never-ending story was hugely impactful, but in some ways, for a different reason than most people think, I guess it's really the message of the film that impacted me so deeply. And I carried it with me, this idea of doing what you dream, really for my whole life. And I feel so grateful to the author of the never-ending story for introducing me to that idea and kind of being so immersed in a story that really insists on staying committed to the things that your heart values. And I don't know, I think that it's so easy to get disheartened and and lose our way. And we need those kinds of stories. More than ever. Yeah. You you have no idea. I mean, yes, she does. uh, Well, I guess you do. (laughs) The Empress. But but Krypton Radio is sort of uh, sort of the same thing. We are we're doing this because we love what we're doing and we want to we want to create stories for other people 
for people to enjoy, take them places they couldn't go by themselves, show them things yeah. they could never see by themselves, and have experiences that hopefully change them for the better. And we can all change for the better, and we all take this trip to, in life together, don't we? Hmm. I, I, yeah. If somebody were to come up to me and say, listen, um, top 10 movies of the decade of the 80s that were the most influential, there's no way that anybody could pass up the never-ending story. That was something that was, I think, in myself, you know, that that was a movie that really, I think, in itself, the, the characters and the story itself are very strong to, even today, I think the plot and the story could resonate today. And if kids were to watch it today, they would be just, I think, a, 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 immersed as I was when I first saw it for the very first time. Well, and which was remarkable because that was really the getting to be the age of franchises. If it wasn't Star Wars, the kids weren't going to watch it. And there was right. hardly any names in this that people knew, knew yet anyway. It, it was just so remarkable and on its own. Yeah, and I think it was a unique moment in filmmaking partly because it was pre-CGI. And so the amount of talent that went into creating those sets, there were so many artists. I I even run into people here in New York. I I did a photo shoot recently with a woman who who made a paper canoe for us for a photo shoot. And yeah, and and she's from (sighs) Berlin and all of her friends worked on the film in The Neverending Story. Like she knew 10 of the designers on it because apparently like literally everybody in Germany that was a costume designer, a makeup artist, a sculptor (laughs) was sort of brought in. It was you know, this massive project at the Bavarian Studios. And everything was made by hand by these really talented artists and craftspeople that put each scale in place, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there's and, such a diverse look, I guess. it, But but that was to the film's advantage because every character was different. Every, it had sort of the same feel as uh, uh, the Baron Munchausen movie. Yes and no. I oh, mean, I love, uh, I love that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, but I um, just think that, yeah, I just think that there's something about the kind of the fact that the sets were real and you could actually physically be in them and inhabit them and touch them that it's not better than CGI. I mean, CGI is incredible. It can transport you to the most remarkable landscapes, but it has a unique quality that I think each medium and each kind of style of something evokes something different. And there is this sort of, I think, a nostalgia in us for a time where you could touch and feel things. You know, everything's kind of getting so surreally digital around us. I think there's something about that that era where you know, you actually built the thing and interacted with it that is kind of nostalgic. The first fully realized CGI character was Jar Jar Binks. Uh, he, yeah. was, he was the first one that was fully integrated into the, the real life environment that, that was around him. And you could tell at the time, uh, this was, this was kind of new ground. He was, the he actors, was very committed though. He was. Uh, but the, uh, the actors were not used to interacting with a, a character who wasn't there uh, you didn't uh, they didn't think to have tennis balls on sticks for act- for people to look at you know to know what to focus on right. yeah no, but the jar jar actor dressed up and he showed up on set to be there you know so the eye line was there 
Yeah, oh, to, that's to a point. Yeah, for 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 some of the shots, yeah, but for some of them, for some of them, not. Well, this and, is where imagination comes in, and the actors are going to have to learn it. And it's it's a long haul <laughs> compared to physically being there and being face to face with a luck dragon. Well, I was I was going to say that this reminded me more of the Dark Crystal, where you could look at a, a, a dimension, a place. Uh, you know, when you saw the background and stuff, you could tell that Falcor was flying miles, and you could look in one direction of any screenshot of anywhere in in the movie, and you could tell that Fantasia just kept going and going and going, and and, and just seemed like it's endless. That you could be there physically, and that you could interact with the things, and it was just—I think that's one of the ma- for a better term—the magic of the never-ending story because it felt like you could be part of it. No CGI and such like that. Well, it and, wasn't just a soundstage. You, you, yeah. it was real all the way to the horizon. It, yeah. Tammy, did you do you remember the first time you saw Falcor? Yes, I do. I mean, my unfortunately, my interaction with Falcor was a little less magical because I saw his head mm-hmm. and then I saw like this big metal crane come out of his body. <laughs> Oops. Uh, that's yeah, that's kind of ruins ruins the effect. Yeah. Yeah, kind of ruins so the moment. It's, it's not as romantic, I think, as as I want the story to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but but I have to say that then when I saw the film at the premiere for the first time, I was so blown away because I'd seen all the like wires sticking out the back <laughs> of stuff and all the people like moving the levers up and down and you know mm-hmm. so um it's it was really fun to see all the behind the scenes mechanics but obviously not seeing them and seeing it realized was really really thrilling i was like oh <laughs> now <laughs> that I get it. yeah yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen this on youtube tammy there's somebody had taken a picture of their dog put there and it looks like uh, like a fluffy falcor and they stuck the dog's head out the window and they're playing the never ending uh, <laughs> theme song and they're doing it in slow motion you can see his face with the wind on it it looks exactly like falcor i'm just like oh my god you need a little action figure i i have to go look that up that sounds perfect yeah <laughs> i'll try to find it for you. Well, if we find it, we'll put it on, um, you know, on our web page. So, so how long were you yeah. on the set when you were doing? You had you basically had one set that you were on in the film, which is, uh, surprises yeah. people, you know, because your role was so important. Yeah, but she didn't move around much. She was in her throne room, and that's where she was. <laughs> yes, I was. I just sat. I was very um, sick. So I had to be in bed for the for the scenes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's it, it's true. It's a very short amount of screen time. There's um, the scene in the sort of pearl and then there's the scene in the darkness, um, which is awesome because, you know, the first scene had this incredibly lavish set. that was so gorgeous. And then the second scene is just like two folding chairs and like just uh-huh. not, not nothing, you know, it's just dark. <laughs> and it's, it's a great, it's a great cinematic cheat and it's done in theater it's as so, well. It's, it's called totally. a, yeah, and it, it's called a limbo set for, for those who don't know. And uh, it's what you do when you want to create an environment out of nothing. And it, you just put a couple of actors in it and, um, and no background at all. And it all, the entire scene comes from the actors, which at 10 years old 
you pulled this off so well. I mean, I was just, by the time, I just rewatched the film uh, last week. Of course. And uh, tears were streaming down my face. I'm not ashamed to say. It's one of the, it's <laughs> the most beautiful, beautiful scenes in any film that I can remember seeing in a very, very long time. And, and there's no explosions, and there's yeah. no no boo boo words, and everybody's got the clothes on. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> he's talking about he's talking about crying. I'm still I, I had took at least three to five years of therapy for a tray on his horse in that swamp scene <sighs> that I never got over. Well, that's it's it's a fantasy world. That doesn't mean all fantasies I, are nice. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there that what's I've been thinking about a lot just on my own as a person who's interested in making stories now for children is how much darkness do we include in stories for kids? And in a way you don't want to extinguish the sort of youthful naivete and exuberance and light that kids have. But at the same time, the real world can be a really dark place and not everything has a happy ending. And in some ways, I don't know if we're really doing a service by anesthetizing everything so much that we um, we sort of don't allow people to to build resilience mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in the face of difficulty. You know, so one of the things I think really like about the Neverending Story is that it it did allow itself to be sad, and it it did um, kind of ask kids to go to a place that's a little bit scary. Um, and as a young actor, for me, that was so exciting to sort of be given the opportunity to um, show that children have the capacity to understand and feel deeply about things and that, you know, they aren't just these sort of um, cute uh, unsophisticated little dolls that walk around. They're human beings with a, a, a rich inner tapestry and that they have the capacity to participate in complex events, uh, even even if they're children. I mean, obviously, there's a limit. You're not going to mm -hmm. dramatize a kid. You know, there there should be some limits. But what the balance is and, and how stories serve our capacity to develop empathy and courage, uh, that's a really interesting question, I think. The, I think one of the one well, the most interesting thing about the never ending story is that uh you uh barrett and and noah were th they they casted those roles right there are three dynamic kids in this movie and they barely even saw each other for a very long time they may have interacted or anything but they seem to all have their own story and their own set of things going on and the, the way that it all intertwined and interacted i i think that that was just wonderful it's like intertwining snakeies exactly <laughs> <laughs> i getting back to your uh your previous point though um showing kids that there is a dark side to the world uh, you can't i i think that's actually important because you can't show, you can't have... There's no the, light without the darkness. Exactly. Thank you. I she, could see yeah. where you were going. She's, she's, we've been around each other for so long <laughs> that she finishes my sentences and it's a wonderful thing. At least I'm doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I, and I also think that, um, I think it's partly, you know, what kind of darkness are we talking about? I, I think a lot of old fairy tales used to show darkness, but the motive was sort of like, there's no babysitters around and we just want to make sure our kids don't go into the forest where they'll get eaten. So we're just going to make a whole lot of stories about terrible things that can happen to you in the forest. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that, that some of the original fairy tales were really cautionary tales to kind of try to control kids behavior. And, um, and maybe that was suitable at that time uh, with whatever the societal dangers were that existed there. But obviously as society evolves and changes um, the role of stories and how they function in our lives and what we need from them changes as well. And I think um, now the way in which we include difficult content for kids uh, does serve as a kind of tool to develop resiliency and um, Mm -hmm. empower kids to try to, you know, build the world that they want to see. So how are you using this idea in your new work? Well, um, as I said, uh, I had a daughter, and uh, after she was born, a couple years after she was born, um, I looked at my husband, and we both, we, I, I was a dancer and a choreographer, and he was an actor, but we also both acted in a theater company together for many years, and so we sort of got this idea simultaneously where we were like, let's make some family entertainment content, because we're watching all these kids' videos and listening to kids' music and reading kids' books, and it just, it was really interesting. It was really exciting to kind of pour all of our experience into this new um, direction. And so I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm basing it out of my, the kind of need that I see in my family. And I wanted to create stories uh, where uh, there might be less likely hero. So one of the stories we made, uh, which we did as a play in New York, uh, called light, a, light, a dark comedy, um, which we may retitle. We're going to turn it into a, a podcast series next, um, mm. is a story about, uh, a little girl who grows up in a world without light. It, it has a, a kind of sci-fi dystopian setting where somebody was trying to fix the problem that no one was sleeping anymore and everything was go, go, go and bright lights and work and productivity. And the world got to the point where it was so out of balance that he tried to create this uh, dark maker that would create a place where you could dream and rest and, um, and go find sleep again. And the whole thing goes terribly wrong. And eventually all the light is sucked out. And, and the world is left in darkness. But so the heroine is a lot like my daughter. She's a really precocious, uh, little girl and she doesn't have brawn and she doesn't have, uh, authority. <laughs> but what she has is just this insatiable curiosity and she can just feel that something is missing and she keeps on asking all these questions and getting into all this trouble. And I think that, you know, the dark age, we talk about the dark ages, we talk mm-hmm. about you know, in a way, it's a sort of metaphor for how quickly history is forgotten. You know, within one generation, uh, if if stories aren't told about the past to the next generation, those stories are lost. And so you could have a, a world where 
if a generation passes and no one remembers the sun and you're not allowed to talk about it because it's taboo, you would absolutely lose a sort of vital information. And so she goes on this giant adventure and literally saves the day. She brings back the sun. <laughs> well, uh, two, um, two things. So, First of all, yeah. that sounds as though it is going to be marvelous. Did you and see the pictures from it? No, no, no I haven't. They're kind of steampunk. Yeah, huh. it's a little bit steampunk. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, the second thing I was going to say was that, like all marvelous things, it begins with love. Definitely. Yeah. How old is your daughter? Is she going to be involved in this? So my daughter is turning seven in two weeks. It's oh, wow. super Happy exciting. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's involved in everything in the sense that uh, I think about, uh, you know, what are the stories I want her to grow up around and what are the kinds of um, ideas I want to have floating around the house and this notion that um, – in a way, children have an opportunity to correct the mistakes that the adult world makes seems really powerful to me and that adults don't have all the answers. And um, it's really mm. important for kids to to question the world around them and ask, well, wait a minute. Does it have to be that way? Should it be that way? Is it is it good for everyone that it's that way? And um, so the, it, it comes from a place and she, she loves it. She, we talk about the storyline. She's really invested in how things unfold. She was terrified. There wouldn't be a happy ending. She was weeping like, but, but she's got to bring back the sun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? this is, so that, boy, that's a sign that you've got it right. It's a sign that you're doing it right. There's boy. your target audience. So it's really fun, you know, to get back to my roots and get back to kind of family entertainment and where I started in a way, uh, although, of course, now I'm an adult and I'm coming at it um, with the purpose of, you know, reaching reaching kids like my daughter. Mm-hmm. It sounds absolutely entrancing. Once you get it to a podcast stage. Yes. Let's broadcast as a radio show. On Krypton, oh my God, that would be awesome. on Krypton Radio. It's a Saturday morning matinee, you know. We would we would love to have that. That's like oh, that exactly the kind of thing that we that our audience enjoys and that we personally enjoy. That would be awesome. I would love that. Thank you. Marvelous. So and then, uh, well, and then now that you know, the another thing that we did is um, we released a music CD that um, is called Beanstalk Jack. So um, that is a little bit of a sort of happier, much more sort of uplifting and, and less creepy dark story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's important, too. I think, you know, we, we need to get a good pick me up every once in a while. Um, and it's just a classic tale of Jack and the Beanstalk. But we gave it a little bit of a twist. We gave the giant a daughter named Harmony instead of a wife. And we made Jack a little older. So he's more like... 16-ish. Mm-hmm. And when he goes up into the clouds and he uh, knocks on the castle door, Harmony opens the door and she's sort of been trapped in this gilded cage all alone with, you know, all this money and all these fancy instruments, but nobody to play with and nobody to dance with. And they 
fall in love. And instead of stealing all the giant stuff, we decided that he would steal Harmony's heart and they would run away together. And that that would crush the giant the most to kind of lose his his daughter to Jack. Yeah, but she's a giant's daughter. I mean, I hope he likes mountain climbing because that's a big girl. (laughs) No. We, 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 we made her the same size as Jack. So oh, just the, okay. that's a help. Just, yeah, no, they, they, that would be quite a height difference. You're right. Yeah. But no, she's she's normal sized. She's just, uh, yeah. And the, the giant's big, but he's also big metaphorically in the sense that he's sort of this mm-hmm. super authoritarian, uh, enormous power that you don't think you'll ever be able to get away from. After all, if not to illustrate a point, what's a metaphor? Oh, <laughs> oh that was so good. <laughs> you have, she doesn't you meet have, the minimum hype requirement for the roller coaster ride with the Giants. <laughs> <laughs> you have my permission to steal that if you want. <laughs> so tell us about the journey from acting to dance and how that happened. Okay. Well, it's interesting. I think that for me... Dancing and acting were much more similar. I don't think other people see them as connected. And I, I don't know, they just both seemed very connected to me in the sense that I think that there's a way in which my mission in life has been to kind of affirm feeling <laughs> that somehow I, I just I came into this world with this idea that people are really afraid of emotions and afraid of feeling and that in an effort to run away from that, a lot of really damaging stuff happens and that there's something about practicing art forms that get you in touch with emotion and get you in touch with sensation and kind of allow you to really feel whatever it is you're feeling at that moment rather than shutting it down that I just wanted to be a part of. That's That was the most important thing for me. And both of the art forms tune in to feeling in slightly different ways. But so I was acting and dancing at the same time growing mm-hmm. up. And then after The NeverEnding Story, I, I was genuinely a little freaked out by celebrity. Uh, or some of the things that come with that idea. I was a a daughter of wonderfully sweet academic parents. My father's Scottish, my mother's Israeli. And most of what we talked about at the dinner table were things that happened in the fifth century BC. Uh, And kind of takes you out of the present day a little bit and makes it maybe a little harder to relate to what's going on directly around you. And, you know, my parents just, Hollywood was so... It was it it was like, you know, an alien country. It was just beyond any conception of their frame, you know. Mm -hmm. And so after the film, we had other film offers, but a lot of them were sort of inappropriate for a little girl. There were some pretty weird offers on the table. And we also had a a kind of disconcerting amount of people coming to the house (laughs) and, and like, booking hotel rooms down the street and just like waiting in front of the house. To and see it if was, you'd come out? To, yes, to, to, to try to talk to me when I came out of the house and I'd have to go out the back of the house to go to school. And it was sort of disconcerting and we just felt really ill-equipped to deal with it, you know, and mm-hmm. my parents are really polite people and, and 
I didn't really know how to handle it. So we, so I sort of freaked out and they kind of freaked out. We were like, we're not doing this. This is too weird. <laughs> and then I really threw myself into, into dance uh, really heavily. The kind of dance that I did once I got into college always gravitated towards what's called dance theater, which mm-hmm. is a much more European tradition. And it's less abstract. There's, there's storylines inside of it. There can be pieces of text that then then break into a kind of poetic uh, landscape. Uh, there's usually like a, a very visual set, like a something that has kind of whimsical and fantastical about the set, like a little bit mm-hmm. surreal. And so I feel like all of these things that I was attracted to, which are kind of like these poetic images from like fantasy worlds, they still kind of found their way into the worlds I was building with dance. And there was always little pieces of texts and characters that I was working with. And then I found myself really missing acting in New York. Uh, once I graduated, I had my own dance company and I was dancing with a variety of other companies. And I uh, sort of started stalking this theater company that I loved at the time called The Flying Machine. And I took all of their workshops and I just kept coming uh-huh. <laughs> to everything that they did. And eventually they let me into the company because I just wouldn't go away. <laughs> Some Could the- you see that? The childlike empress is just outside your door. Will somebody let her in, please? <laughs> no, I was this it, cold. sort of the other end of the stalking equation. <laughs> yeah. I started with stocking and then I put myself in the category. So I don't know, (laughs) but it was great. And this theater company, interestingly enough, the European tradition, they studied the school of Jacques Lecoq and it's a very different tradition than the American acting tradition. I was also taking acting classes uh, with Laura Esterman, who's a fabulous acting teacher in New York at the same time. So I never really stopped acting. I just wasn't Mm -hmm. pursuing it professionally in, I was pursuing it professionally on the stage. I wasn't pursuing, doing it commercially in film and TV. Mm-hmm. And so this theater company, they come from a tradition where the body takes on the shape of a character or the shape of an emotion. And then by being in that shape physically, you wait and the emotion comes and fills the shape. And obviously in American acting, you you kind of imagine the emotion and you put yourself mentally in that place and then your body mm-hmm. It, it's kind of it's upside down from the way we do it. Yeah, here. it's a reverse mm. way of entering the the, mm-hmm. the state, and it's it was so interesting because after spending so long training my body physically in dance, it was such an exciting reentry into the world of professional theater to have that training be valuable and to come back to acting through a new door. And, and really, you're just trying to find an authentic moment where you really believe where you are. And there's a million doors to get into that. But it was a sort of interesting thing to be studying method acting and studying acting where you start with a psychological state and then also be working with this company where you start with a physical state to reach the emotional state. Um, and in that way, I think that work really tied dancing and theater together for me. It's, it's all on a spectrum. And, and the, the body and the emotion are really Really linked, and I think uh, for me, it's really useful to see them as just variations of each other. So, this was a realization that slowly dawned on you, or did you have an epiphany one day and said, "Ah, I know that. I understand this. I know how this works." 
It was a little bit of an, uh, uh, no, it was a little bit, you know, at the time I felt really fragmented. I was like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm dancing, but then I'm acting and I need to pick something. It's so, you know, why do I like so many different disparate things that don't connect? And then eventually I realized, well, wait a minute, they, they do connect. They connect for me. And, and in some ways, I think in trying to understand the world, we make all these categories, but the categories that we make aren't necessarily useful. And I think sometimes we have to reframe categories to kind of make our own reality make sense to us. When that clicked, uh, was a really exciting moment. And then at that point, I suddenly started letting my dances flood with much more theater. And I started doing some off-Broadway plays. And I was like, it's it's cool. This is all the same thing. Different expressions of the same thing. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to apply a new label to you that you probably haven't heard before. I believe you are a polymath. Oh. Bless you. <clears throat> <laughs> A, a polymath is a multidisciplinary artist or thinker, yeah. uh, and I, and one who sees this, who synthesizes or, or or creates new fusions between various bodies of knowledge that would, to a normal person, not be connected. But the polymath sees the connections. I love that word. That's a new word for me. So I'm excited to learn it. But yes, I'm really interested in the space between things. I think that's a really rich place to investigate and and much more interesting than sort of sealing things off and not letting them touch. As you learn new things, do you feel, uh, as as you learn new disciplines, do you feel that uh, each thing is, is a whole new adventure or simply a new aspect of something you already know? Well, I think that probably the most truthful things reside in a space with a little bit of contradiction. (laughs) So you have to fold into what you know, or else it's not going to feel guided in a way that that you have the confidence to continue. So you, you have to fold into what you know, but you also have to be willing to get lost in order to do anything that's going to be really interesting, because otherwise you're just doing exactly what you did the last time. So I think it's for me, and it's, it's sometimes it's, it's not the most comfortable state, but I think there's a kind of mission I have to sort of keep myself in a state of both folding into what I know and falling into the unknown simultaneously. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of an exciting and terrifying place to be, but it, it seems to be where, where I keep on throwing myself. <laughs> that it sounds like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Uh, We're looking forward to seeing what the paper canoe is up to next. What are you doing now? So we are making videos for the Beanstalk Jack album that we are releasing. And uh, that's really fun because it's new for me. I never did a storyboard before. I took, I did one video called from the Hey Wow soundtrack, which features my daughter. And I did a lot of stop animation. So it was choreographing these tiny, tiny little movements that the toys were doing. And that was really exciting. And I'm going to be working in January with Puppet Kitchen, which is a wonderful puppet studio here in New York City. 
we're going to make a, a video for the title track uh, using a downshooter camera. So it's um, finding ways to use choreography, which has been my main medium for so many years, but object manipulation and kind of just fun ways of bringing the song visually to life. So we'll be working on a series of videos for Beanstalk Jack and then podcast for light. And we do have a new idea for a fantasy short that I would love to make. So it's kind of too early to really talk about, but we have some designs on putting together a short film, which would be really, really fun to do. This all sounds marvelous. And the more I hear, the more that word, P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H, polymath, oh my God, it applies to you. You are a singer, you're an actress, you're a dancer, you're a writer, you are an animator. You're a storyteller you, in every every way. And it is it is an honor to make your acquaintance. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much. She slices, she dices, she makes Julian fries. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Julian can make his own fries. No. Okay, well, I'm actually really not very good in the kitchen. My ah, husband's the that's, cook. Oh, that's oh, one no. th- you found the one thing she can't do. I don't slice and dice. <laughs> <laughs> You found the one well, see, you're, thing. You're being busy being doing other things. You don't need the kitchen part. It's, it's you're, my Krypton. Your work. It's my Krypton. I make an okay your salad. Sammy, <laughs> so, if I could ask you this question, what are you most proudest of doing in your entire life? What do you? What's the most proudest thing you've done? I'm going to give you such a cliched answer. It's like That's I'm. A- I'm already like grossing myself out, but it is, I can't say anything else. It's my daughter. I mean, of course, like, yeah, I'm, I'm proudest of having been a mother to my daughter. It's such an incredible thing to have a relationship with a little being like that from, from the very beginning and watching her grow and watching her become who she is and being a part of that. So incredible. Oh. That's I know. It's so cheesy. I know. Well, there's a reason <laughs> things not become is not. you know proverbial. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's sort of like what everyone says, but I, yeah, it's. I mean, it. Yeah, it's been. For, and I was very. You know, I got to it very late. I had her when I was 38, and I think that earlier in my life, I really didn't want children. I was super invested in dancing and in my career, and I really just didn't want to have a child at all. I was just really, really happy with being in the studio and I felt like it was going to derail me and, and I was terrified of it. And in many ways it did derail me. I, I stopped the life I had and I went in a totally different direction, you know, but it's okay to be derailed. I think new directions open up new uh, areas for you to explore. And, and I think that, you know, for different people, it, it can be fulfilling. And for other people, it, it's, it's not. And that's the beauty of being able to steer our own lives. But I think for me, it was such a surprise only because I had her so late and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't something I was expecting. I was sort of terrified of it. And in fact, it derailed me in a really exciting way, kind of opened up new intellectual and creative avenues for me as opposed to shutting them down. Meeting your husband. Uh, you met in the theater. We did. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. It, must, it was one of the most exciting 
times of your life one of the most momentous? Well, it's very funny because I had this rule that I was never, ever going to date anyone I worked with. (laughs) That's, you know, and I was like, those dancers and actresses that do that are just, you know, shooting themselves in the foot. You don't do that. You're professional. (laughs) And so, of course, the thing you rail against the most is the thing you ultimately end up doing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I was never going to date inside the industry and look at look at what I wound up doing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but so, yeah, we were um, we uh, we were in this wonderful theater company together, uh, the flying machine. And that's where we met and I fell in love. And um, Mm -hmm. and then after we got married, I said to him, "Okay, so, you know, I I broke my rule of, you know, falling in love with someone I was working with, but we're not going to work together now that we're married. Like I need my separate career and you need yours and we're not going to mix projects. And he was like, really? It could be so fun to work together. And I was like, absolutely not. No way. (laughs) (laughs) And now, and now look, (laughs) of course, now we run paper canoe together. So and, um, and I guess it that is... makes me not very trustworthy. But <laughs> well, I'm, I don't know where I've gotten myself into in this conversation. <laughs> but you know what? You don't compete with each other. You're you you support each other. You're not you're not just, you know playing king of the hill the way no, people and... in the industry can do. That's true. And you are following the magic. The magic is calling to you, and you're answering that call. And that's- well, he's he's a wordsmith, and I think that was one of the things that really drew me to him is his mm. his facility with language and the way that he it's it's such a nerdy thing on my part, but the way he structures a sentence is super elegant, which I mm. love. And I'm much more visual, and uh, I I see things in images, so it's really fun synergy to bring language and image together and the way that we process information is a little bit different and and really complementary and so i just missed that part of him you know sometimes when you're married and you're busy and you're working a million jobs you end up almost like meeting for these business meetings you're like mm-hmm. well i've done the taxes and you should do the laundry and i'll get the <laughs> uh-huh. oh yeah I'll, and it, it you just basically go through your 15 minutes of like to do tasks and you go see tomorrow, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that, you know, the, the finding a way to access, you know, the original thing that you fell in love with and, and see that part of that person, it, it it definitely is challenging to, to work with one's partner, but it's, it's definitely been worth it um, in this enterprise. I just want to see Greg at the exit interview. Why are you quitting, Greg? Um, Tammy won't let me work here. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no, it's been great. I mean, I think my husband always, in some ways, you know, he he's predicted everything. You know, he was like, we're going to end up working together. And he was right. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I am... So pleased that you were able to join us. I, I am. You're I, speechless. I, apparently, I, I am. speechless. Yeah. I'm, this is this, <laughs> this is, is and first. this is a rare thing for me. Yeah. Uh, I meant what I said earlier that that you were one of the one of the people that shaped who I am now. And you weren't that young when the movie came out. No, honestly, I wasn't. you were not a child. 
and and I am I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to you uh, like this in in this kind of a uh, um, safe space, if you will. And uh, I want to say before I go any further, thank you, thank you for oh. a lifetime of art and music and dance. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for everything you're going to do. We are so glad you are here. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, I, 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 (laughs) I feel like what's special about art is it's, you know, it's a really unique way for people to connect and exchange a sort of more meaningful part of who they are with one another the artwork is one thing, the performance is another thing, but the viewer is just as, as important. And I feel that way, you know, as I watch things, I think participating in a story from whatever angle, like every single, like the, the person absorbing the story is just as important as the person telling the story. And it's that third dimension between the artwork and the viewer where, you know, each person pours themselves and their own life experiences into the story. And that that energy is this sort of magical space. That's so cool that, you know, that what art does is it creates its own community and its own set of values that are, you know, really important to um, bringing people together. And that's the message of the never-ending story in the first place, yeah, isn't it? I mean, what's that's the, the point whole, of it without yeah. Bastion, you know? The whole point of the film is that. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I feel bad because it took me 30-plus years. I was just telling Tammy earlier before we started everything, is that it took me 30 years to figure out what Bastion said, what the name was. Oh, I've and been said, running that stupid... <laughs> I, I love Moon Pie. Moon pie. I think... <laughs> <laughs> It's but, sort of a like a, well, an affectionate nickname. Well, what Bastion <laughs> is yelling is is uh, Moonchild. Moonchild. Yeah, and yes. you and you yeah, can but it took me thirty hear years it. to figure this one out. But everybody, <laughs> so but like, you know, you know what? It every been a big marketing thing for Tammy right now. <laughs> but everyone I know who had lost their mother ever, okay. uh, oh. it was their own mother's name that they mentally thought it was inserted. You know, inserted yeah. in yeah. the story. You know, Wolfgang gave Barrett the opportunity to say whatever name he wanted. And I was on set that day and he went to the side of the room for 10 minutes and could see him all scrunched up with his little forehead. He's like going through these different names of like what he thinks the name should be. But then, you know, after mulling it over, he decided to go with the, the, the name from the book. Um, and, and stick with Moonchild, but he. But it was fun, sort of seeing him think about what the name could be. <laughs> because he was he was fully engaged, and he was uh, what a, he was being part of the story himself, wasn't he? He, yeah. he was. I, 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 the film breaks the fourth wall, and it does it not once but twice. Because yes. uh, the original book has you reading about a boy who's reading a book. And perceiving the story through the book that he's reading, and then suddenly you are perceiving his story through the book that you're reading, and then they become aware of you as being part of the story yourself. And that's the emotional shock that gets you at the end. And that's suddenly, yeah, suddenly you're busted. (laughs) 
And, 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 and you're, you're, you're used to looking, you're used to watching these stories or reading books and being sort of a, uh, an unseen omniscience. And suddenly you are part of the story. And that emotional shock just gets you every time. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon. This is episode 189. Tammy Stronach, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. It was fun. Thank you for joining us for a special edition of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for January 13th, 2018. This was episode 189. Our guest has been the childlike empress from the never-ending story, Ms. Tammy Stronach. For more information about Tammy Stronach and Greg Steinbrenner's new media company, Paper Canoe, visit TammyStronach.com or Patreon.com slash Paper Canoe. Your hosts this week have been Susan Fox, Gene Turnbow, and Christian Basil. This episode will air again tomorrow, Sunday, January 14th, 2018, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is nerd-supported geek culture radio. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Event Horizon, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and agree to donate $5 a month. This will help keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schermeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>